This is the MyMac Podcasting Network. Tech fan number 19 with Tim Robertson, David Cohen, and who the heck is Kevin Shea? everyone tim robertson with tech fan like i said last week david cohen was supposed to do a solo podcast and he's still going to do that kind of but i got a little segment to put right at the beginning of the show i decided to uh i'm showing a co-worker what it's like to podcast his name's kevin shea he's the manager of business development here at max specialist chicago illinois villa park illinois how you doing kevin Pretty good, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's kind of weird when, see, Kevin and I have been talking all week, sitting in the same office, and now I stick a microphone in front of his face, and he seems to be a little, speak up, say something. I thought I was speaking <laughs> up. <laughs> so, one of the things that we're thinking about doing here at Max Specialist is podcasting, and I've got a little bit of experience in that, and I kind of wanted to open it up to you guys, the listeners of the Tech Fan Podcast, if we started yet another show, this one probably wouldn't fall under the MyMac banner, although we'd still produce it, what would you guys like to hear in a podcast? Now, I'm bringing Kevin in to, to a little bit of an interview, but more or less to kind of talk to Kevin on the air about podcasting. Have you ever really listened to many podcasts, Kevin? I can't really say that I have. Uh, I've been aware of it, heard a few here and there that I picked up on, but I, I've never been a strong follower of any brand or or just podcasting in general. It's really sparse for me. So what have you done here at Max Specialist? I, I know what you're doing now, the business development. We don't, Let's not get into that, but kind of go backwards a little bit. Um, me personally or You personally. Company? Uh, as Kevin Shea at Max Specialist, what were you doing here? Do I have before? to speak in third person? Or you can. Kevin can. was. <laughs> well, it all started when Kevin. Uh, no, um, <clears throat> uh, I started off here um, actually uh, freelancing as an Apple certified trainer uh, for Final Cut Pro and other Final Cut Studio apps. I did that for a few months before they uh, they brought me on here. Uh, in, How many years ago was that? Uh, oh, two, three. It's I'm starting my fifth year okay. in March, so that would mean four. Four. <laughs> uh, obviously, math isn't involved in my job description anymore. So, when you're teaching Final Cut Pro, is it like a one-on-one class, a one-on-two class? What was the level of user usually at most of your classes? Uh, I I started teaching the level one. Final Cut course, which is people coming in has no experience at all. It's it's funny. It's it, it can reach across a broad scope of uh, knowledge. Um, I usually ask people when they come into class on a scale of one to ten. Uh, one being, uh, what's the name of this class again? <laughs> and uh, ten being, I can't believe my company sent me here because I really don't need this. Uh, where they would potentially fall uh, is as far as skill set with, with Final Cut. Would you kind of tailor the class then, depending on the answers? Because you could yeah. have four or five ones, and 
two or three eights. Yeah, I mean that's that's really the mark of a good trainer is is to know where everybody falls and and have kind of a a, a projected number to get them to of a skill set. Um, and the the better trainers will pick up uh, more on the people who are in the lower numbers and and give them a little bit more, a little more hands-on, a little more one-on-one time, a little more face time, um, and kind of present the material as it is to the people with higher numbers and then give them kind of special projects to go off and kind of learn on their own because they've obviously already got some experience. And you have to manage everybody individually while also managing them as a group. Now, a lot of people listening to this are pretty hardcore Mac users, and they think that they really know this program or that program really well. And they think, you know, I could become a trainer. How did you become a trainer? That, that's the same thing I thought when yeah. I first became a trainer. <laughs> but you're and, probably um, the exception to the rule. Uh, how's that? Most people who think that they could be a trainer probably don't really have the skills or the patience to teach a class for three days in a row on something that they know intimately well, but actually coming up with a a course outline, how you teach someone that knows absolutely nothing and bring them to a certain level. Most people think they can do that, but most people really are not good at that. And, you know, I mean, you won't necessarily know until you get in front of a class. Uh, And that's how I learned. Uh, The first class I ever taught was actually Final Cut Express. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought, okay, this is good. It'll work me in. It's, It's not pro. It's probably not the same level of user as I get in a pro class. Um, but I, I got there and I, I just, I remember standing there at the start of class and introducing myself with my, my hands tremoring. <laughs> um, my mouth went dry and I had that yeah, yeah. going on every Water time place. I was saying something. Um, I loosened up probably on the second day of the class. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the biggest thing I remember about that was the preparation time I put into it. Um, the, there's the courseware that Apple puts out through the Apple Pro training series of books. Um, but I, I wanted to, you know, stand out as, you know, I know this, I present this in my way, but right. I follow their curriculum. You have to make it your own. You do, yeah. Again, the mark of a good trainer. Right. Um, so I remember I was up, uh, I spent uh, the week beforehand, uh, several hours a day, making my own schedules for the day. We're going to go over this, then we're going to go over this, and trying my best to rehearse everything in my head. And then I wound up getting there uh, on the first day of class, and I finished up at 5 o'clock, and I went home, and I worked on refining the next day and, and everything I did in the first day until like 3 in the morning. Wow. Um, and that was every day of the class, including the last day when you think, oh, thank God, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Right. No, I was up till 3 o'clock that night going over the day 3 content and refining it. Uh, and then, of course, the next class I taught was pro, so it was like all that work yeah. was kind of... Kind of taught. Well, at least a lot of it was tossed out. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, you, you develop a voice after a while, um, which uh, it kind of goes along with the... Podcasting. We're talking about podcasting. Right. Um, you and I have had discussions. Uh, so what would your show be about? What would you talk about? And it's right. That. And that's the questions that I'm posing to Kevin. It's that the idea of a Mac Specialist podcast... Sounds like a good one, but then you have to step back and say, okay, what's the show about? If the show is about news, what's happening in the Apple universe, well, there's a thousand shows like that, and you're never going to stand out unless you have a personality that can really bring it home. And quite honestly, I'm probably overexposed in a lot of the other stuff that I do in podcasting. So it can't be a news show. It can't be an opinion show because we have a working relationship with Apple. We are an Apple specialist certified company, we're not going to get on the air and start criticizing decisions that Apple made or 
badmouth their products. We sell their products. We support them. So we can't go that route. Yeah, that would be a pretty short-run show. That, that would, yeah, it'd last about one episode, I think. <laughs> so the question then returns, what would a new Mac show be? You could do a service show, i.e., we have service guys here. We are Apple certified in that we can do Apple Care warranty repair as well as vintage older Macs out of warranty that people literally have to pay for themselves to get these old machines fixed. I mean, how many G4s do we see coming in here on a weekly basis? Um, I don't know, probably as many as when they first came out. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly my point. So we could do that kind of show, but doing a tech show when it comes to support is very difficult and takes a lot of time. People would submit a question, and the example I gave Kevin was, my iTunes library uh, or my iTunes just quits. Why? Well, there's a thousand other questions that we would need to know before we can even give an intelligent answer. You know, what OS is it running on? Is it Windows? Is it Mac? Is it? Does it only happen when you plug in your iPad? I mean, there's so many different things that go along with right. that that we couldn't intelligently answer that question. So, what does that leave? I don't. It. it I think it what, what you were of- talking about actually. Think about what we were just discussing, what you did at Mac Specialist when you started. About being a trainer and all right. the preparation I put into it. Well, I guess that pretty much comes down to it is just Could we saturating do, your own knowledge of everything. Right. You know? What about a Mac Specialist, Welcome to the Mac, Mac 101 Basics type of a class, uh, podcast? I almost said class. You did, yeah. Uh, a podcast for the new users. Because if you look at how many new Macintoshes are being sold... Just on a daily basis. Every quarter, it's the best quarter Apple's ever had that they've sold Macintosh. And then the next one is the they've just sold more than they've ever done any quarter. And you're like, weren't we just saying that two years ago? So it's constantly going up. Right. Uh, you, you also have kind of a broad spectrum of new users when you're talking right. about that. Uh, sometimes new users are even at a pro level, if you will, because they were avid editors. They, right. they know editing inside and out, but their companies decided cost or flash or whatever they decided to move to apple products and now they've got to learn final cut well they're already a a, pardon the pun but an avid user of technology yeah it's not going to take them long to get up and running right a lot of times for those people you just have to tell them well in avid it's called this button in final cut it's called this button but on a podcast if you make it very specific okay this podcast is all going to be about final cut pro for instance you limit your exactly Yeah. And and when you really take a step back for Mac Specialist, for us in particular, the only reason we really would like to podcast is from a marketing point of view. Yes. Uh, Brand well, awareness, of course. but Right. But also, I mean, that, that's just who we are. Um, you, you and I, as you know, management of Mac Specialist, have, have done a lot of talking lately about what Mac Specialist is. We've gone through a lot of changes over the past couple of years. Um, and, you know, we our, our customer base has is, is pretty much always been there, and they, they keep coming back because they know who we are. Um, but, you know, Mac, like everything, we, we were changing. You know, the times are changing. The face of Apple is changing with the amount of iOS devices coming out. You know, when I first came on, the iPhone wasn't even there. Right. Um, that market didn't exist, you know, and... And even talking about, like you're saying, a, a new users new to Apple, mm-hmm. and talking about how there's pro-level people, there's also people new to Apple who are strictly mobile device users. They don't even have a Mac computer at home. So that's a completely different type of new user. Right. So it's coming, coming back to what we were talking about, lots of tangents here, but um, when you're... Uh, 
talking about marketing, doing podcasts for marketing, um, sometimes it's helpful just to you know reiterate to the people who've always been there with you who you are and what you do for them. Mm-hmm. One of the things we pride ourselves on is that you know the well, we had a slogan in the company for all, I don't even know if half the people here remember it is uh, the experience is everything. It was kind of our internal mantra, right? That your job is to take care of the customer because they take care of you by supporting your company, right? <clears throat> So, uh, you know, what maybe it could just be something as easy as this is another service we provide to our clients of uh, helping you get the answers you need um, without having to, you know, call in or but bring But what are those answers? What's the show about? Because most of the people listening to the show are probably never going to be our customers because they don't live in the Chicagoland area. Now, we would want to market our show to our customers, and that's who we would try to grow it. But quite honestly, um, it's going to cannibalize the MyMac listeners, at least initially, because we've got a built-in audience. Right. And, I mean, that's the voice we're trying to find right. and trying to think of. You know, Is it something – who, who are we marketing to? Are we trying to get new people across the globe listening to this, I guess, as a podcast, broadcasting? Right. That's probably the point of it. Um, but maybe we could, you know, alter the thought of what a podcast is. Is it just something, another way we reach out to our customers? I don't know. One of the things that we had been discussing is doing a live video podcast from our Chicago location maybe once a month. So that's an opportunity that we could have to, we, we could look into. But again, we really have to come up with what the show would be about. Rather than, hey, let's make a show and try to fit it into what we're already doing. Yeah, and that's an interesting concept because the the problems and questions that somebody might come to us with, the topics we discuss in a, a live broadcast from from our facility in Chicago, would be reaching to both you know our local or our homegrown customer base because they're the people physically there asking the questions. Right. But the questions they're asking again are universal, universal. all Mac users. Right. So. And that's, you know, like I said, you've, you've thrown all kinds of curveballs at me this week trying to talk about what, why are we podcasting? Why, and that's why really, I mean, because Tech Fan is kind of a general tech show. I mean, we've done shows on what's the role in government and technology and the Internet, uh, interviews, stuff like that. But it hasn't really been a Mac-focused show. I, I did that show. I, I still own that show. It's called the My Mac Podcast. And I actually did that during the Macworld Expo when certain members of the podcasting staff slept in and didn't get up. So I had to do a show Good over old there. Tim. Yeah. Uh, but again, I wasn't doing opinion as in, you know, saying anything negative or positive about Apple. I was talking about the ecosystem of the Mac user, which is really quite different than the company of Apple. So I think that that's probably what we would have to look at with Mac specialists because we're more about our customers and the Mac users than we are Apple as a company. Right. Um, you know, we definitely cater to our customers. That's, right. that's you know, the whole point of the business. But at the same time, like, like we talk about, you add a, a new aspect to it when you start talking about broadcasting something out to everybody and... You know how how do we how do we touch on both what we've been traditionally and the evolution of it tapping into new markets and new ventures like podcasting and, and applying what we do to everyone. The neat thing is that we have um, a very gifted staff of experts from the bench techs all the way up to an engineer specialist specialist <laughs> <laughs> that we can tap into that resource and I think. Um, not everybody, but most people would be comfortable on a mic 
talking and answering questions and sharing their knowledge. Uh, but I am very curious on what you guys, the listeners out there, think. We'd love to hear your ideas. What could we do as a company outside of the MyMac universe or TechFan or any of that that I'm already involved in? What could Mac specialists provide the podcasting community to you guys, the listeners, that you think would be interesting enough to get your attention? We don't want to do a new show. Mm-hmm. We don't want to do you know, really a how-to show as, as far as what's wrong with my machine because you just need more information than right. you're generally going to get in an email. It's a new a new delivery system for information. What What is the information you, you don't get? Right. What, uh, what is it that you don't see out there? We, we'd like to fill that, that role. And right. I guess it's it's kind of hard to say, you know, what's what's new? What do you see as new? What's What's different? It's uh, also, because a lot of people are asking that question, right. trying to start up their own. It's not really different to ask what's different. Exactly. Um, Apple already had think different. In Apple that. doesn't ask us what we want as customers. Mm-hmm. They provide us something, and we all go, yep, we want that, and that's what now we have to have. Podcasting, in, in some regards, is the same way. If you ask people, what do you want? And you give that to them; they're bored with it. Mm-hmm. And that you know that goes along with uh, the providing of information. Um, I, in college, I took a, a series of courses on documentary filmmaking, mm-hmm. and we talked about the role of the documentarian as uh, trying to be uh, not an influence on the situation while always monitoring the situation. And there's there's the act, a, a of, philis- monitoring yeah, the act of monitoring. You instantly the situation. influence it. You know right. that. You know, if a tree falls in the forest, right? Situation. I understood the metaphor. I know. Well, <laughs> they did too. I'm sure that we have I'm a sorry. very intelligent. I'm not condescending. That, like, disclaimer, asterisk. Um, but uh, I see now, and then you dis- distract me from what I was going to say. Anyways, um, shiny how, object. Yeah, Look, shiny how object. Do we, put your iPhone. Squirrel. Down. <laughs> but how how do we present differently? Right and and is it always opinionated just because the way you present something, whether you present this function or that app or this product? I mean, if you're if you're not talking about everything there is with even amounts of time and you know, right, even weight to everything, I mean, it's going to be opinionated in some way if you're talking about yes, but I mean critical of Apple when I say an opinion show. Well, I mean that doesn't really benefit. Us. Us at all. <laughs> no. I mean, who does it? I mean, it benefits somebody who's got a show who's all about opinions, and people just go in and, and listen for what they have to say, their contrarian ideas to whatever's out there. Right. Like, oh, you like it? Here's why I don't. Yes. I mean, that's that's shock value. That's entertainment value. And mm-hmm. do we want to be entertaining, or do we want to share information? Here's a question for you. If we did something like this, would you be interested in being the host of the show? Because I know that you were automatically thinking, well, Tim could do it because he already podcasts. <laughs> well, anytime I can put something on your plate and not mine, I'm all but, for it. But that's the question. Um, not that I'm opposed to hosting another show um, or at least leading the discussion to get people going. Because if I would just hit record on GarageBand here and put the mic in front of you, we would have got nothing. Right. Um, but if I did that tomorrow and said, let's do a little thing and stuck the mic in front of you you'd have more of an understanding of what's expected of a podcast. Sure. How to start it, how to, you know. Sure. Um, I, you know, and it, I'd have a learning curve, obviously. Well, Just yeah. like when I became a trainer. 
um, because uh, right now we're already talking longer than I was expecting to be. How long, uh, I'm, I'm looking at my computer, so I know exactly how long it's been. How long do you think we've been chatting? Oh, all right, Einstein. Uh, relative time to me is probably six, seven minutes. Twenty. Seriously? <laughs> Doesn't feel like it's that long, does no, it? Oh, wow. That's one of the things about podcasting is people think it's a lot shorter than what it really is. And then they realize they've been talking for 20 minutes and they think, Wow, that's like a show right there. We just did a whole show, and it doesn't feel like it. You know what I think it is? I think my short-term memory keeps jumping <laughs> because I always have to be thinking of where you might be heading next. Right, yeah. So. Where's Tim going now? Yeah. <laughs> so we do want to kick it out to you guys, the audience. Send us some feedback, um, feedback at MyMac.com. Let us know what you guys think would be a really cool idea for a Mac specialist Podcast. We could do interviews. We can. It could be a how-to show. It could be an introduce introduction to different technologies concerning the Macintosh. Um, but really, what do you, what would you guys like to to hear? Uh, you're not going to see it. You're going to hear it. Right. Well, I mean, we're literally open to anything. Anything. I, I'm I'm not restricting this in any way as a creative. That that's you know that, that's the end of a career right there. That's right. As soon as you start pigeonholing your ideas, I'm always up for. What's hot? What's new? What's what do people want? Um, and I, I want to give it to whoever wants it. So, are you on uh, Twitter, Kevin? Uh, you don't uh, even do know. I, do I? Do you want do I Twitter? Do you uh, Twitter? Uh, do you ever use not it? So much. No, you ought to use no, it that I, way. See, the more you start podcasting, and my goal really is to get Kevin more involved in podcasting because I think he'd be a natural at it personally. Um, so sweet. So sweet. <laughs> Uh, you got to get into the podcasting because that's a good way to promote it. Sure. Um, so the next time we get you on a podcast, you got to have a Twitter account so you can give the Twitter account name. I am okay. obviously at MyMac. So if you guys want to follow me on Twitter, it's twitter.com slash MyMac. TechFan, of course, can be found at the MyMac.com website. We're going to kick this over to David Cohen now. He's doing some kind of a pre-recorded solo show. I already called him on via Skype because being in the UK, I can't just pick up a phone call and call because it costs a lot of money and I don't have an <laughs> international plan on my iPhone. They told me how much that was and I went, no, I don't need that. I make international calls on your phone all the time. I know. I was wondering why the rates were getting so high. <laughs> so we're going to kick it over to David and we'll see you guys next week. Next week it's going to be David and I doing a tech fan. have no idea what it's going to be about, but... Uh, I'll give you guys an update on the status of the Mac Specialist podcast. Talk to you guys later. Thank you. Hey there, Tech Fan listeners. It's David Cohen here one of your regular co-hosts on the TechFan podcast. Now, for those of you who've been listening in previous weeks, you'll know that um, Tim has some scheduling problems for the TechFan for this week. He's in catch-up mode from uh, visiting Macworld Expo, and consequently, the normal recording day that he and I would, would normally meet on Skype and do a show together, he wasn't available. So he left it in my hands to go and record a show, and um, I was talking last week about having an interview uh, set up in order to to bring something to you. Unfortunately, I've not been able to do that. Without going too much into inside baseball, I'm I'm sure most of you aren't really interested in the nuts and bolts of how how we actually schedule and record these shows. 
but uh, unfortunately I've had some work and personal issues this week that mean that I'm not been able to um, record a show the way I would like to have done and certainly I wasn't able to get a scheduled time together with an interviewee so um, I'll have to reschedule that for another time I'll have to bring, bring that to you until a later date uh, and unfortunately I don't know if you can tell from the voice quality of this uh, recording but I'm, I'm not sat nicely in front of a uh, in front of a Mac with a decent microphone and everything I'm actually doing this on my iPhone and grabbing spare moments wherever I can so if you hear background noises like um, office type noises people moving around and things traffic outside and everything that's because I'm just grabbing a few spare moments to get some thoughts down into the iPhone and um, bring some bring a show to you so there's two things that, that have kind of been on my mind that I wanted to talk through with Tim. And um, as he's not able to talk these through with me, I thought I'd just pull them out there and maybe see whether you, some of the listeners, might want to respond or maybe just give you some food for thought. It doesn't really matter either way. So the first thing is celebrations. The, the day I'm recording this is Valentine's Day, the 14th of February. And um, I'm pretty sick of celebration, really. No, this isn't a... Uh, <laughs> comment on my personal love life or lack thereof um i'm happily married and uh, i'm glad to say that i both gave and received very nice valentine's gifts to to my beloved this morning but unfortunately uh, the celebrations i'm complaining about are on the um on the app store the ios app store i have an ipad and i have an iphone and so i buy quite a lot of applications on the app store um i wouldn't like to hazard a guess as to how much i spend but i, I know i've burnt through uh, probably twenty, thirty pounds in the last few weeks, um, because I know I know that because I had a voucher on the store that I was given that that's now gone. So I, I'm spending a fair amount on a regular basis in the app store, and what's kind of annoying me is celebrations. I see today with it being Valentine's Day that Game Loft, Electronic Arts, Sega, just to name a few, have Valentine's Day celebration sales on, where a lot of their apps are reduced by as much as eighty percent. Sounds like a great deal. Fantastic. The problem is, of course, if you've bought any of those apps recently at full price, um, it's a bit galling to find that for some arbitrary reason. And these celebrations, let's face it, if you're cutting prices for Valentine's Day, that's a fairly arbitrary reason. Not normally a, a link between computer gaming or um, pocket gaming and romantic getaways. Quite the opposite, I would suggest. So um, it's a pretty tenuous excuse to drop your prices by up to 80%. And the difficulty I have with it is that if I've paid full price for an app, it might not be an expensive app, it might only be $3, $4, might be as much as $10, who knows. But if I've paid that price and then a few days later, for some reason, the price gets dropped down to $0.99 cents or $1.99 or something like that, it's kind of annoying. Um, it, it, it really kind of sticks in the craw a little bit. Not because they've had a sale. I mean, why shouldn't they be able to have a sale? Why shouldn't they be able to drop the price whenever they want to? But the difficulty is the prices are just kind of going up and down all the time on the App Store at the moment. This started uh, in the run-up to the holiday season last year. Uh, has been going on pretty much ever since. And it's not just games. I think uh, I've seen quite a few productivity apps with uh, where the prices fluctuate for, for various reasons. Sometimes um, if a developer releases a new piece of software, they will cut the price of the old piece, of an old piece of software, even if it's completely unrelated, um, again, as a celebration. 
that as I say, the difficulty is, is that I personally struggle to understand what the value of some of these pieces of software are if I don't know what the regular price is. How can you understand what a regular price for the software is if the price is going up and down all the time? I use an application called App Shopper on my iPad and my iPhone that allows you to keep track of changes in prices, new releases on the App Store, and that sort of thing. Uh, you can filter it by application, type, by um, platform, that sort of stuff. So I can see what some of these apps have been doing in terms of prices. And most of them, if you click on them in App Shopper and look at the price history, you'll see they've kind of been up and down all the time. They start at a price, and they go down, then they go up, then they go down. Sometimes it's only incremental, um, and that's often with smaller applications or smaller developers where the developer is trying to find the right balance point between uh, the value of the app and uh, what people are prepared to pay for it in order to get the volume of sales. I don't really have a problem with that so much. I mean, if, if I pay... Four ninety nine, five ninety nine, seven ninety nine for an app, and it goes down by a dollar or two, um, and it's a small application. Then you know I, I can I can kind of live with that really. Where I really struggle is you have you have a big game. I don't know, like Street Fighter uh, Street Fighter Four, for instance. I think was one of the ones I I noticed today and, and been through this process recently, and that's dropped by fifty percent in price over this weekend. So it's gone down from nine ninety nine to four ninety nine. Now, if I paid nine ninety nine for it last week, I'd be pretty upset about that. Um, I don't doesn't mean the game is any less valuable. Um, it gets very good reviews, so I'm sure it's a great game if that's the sort of thing you're really into. But nobody wants to see um, something they've recently bought change price so quickly. We're all kind of used to a more steady depreciation of prices. Think about it, if you buy a car. Um, you know that you're paying um, kind of a top price, a, a manufacturer price for it, that reflects the fact that it's brand new. And over time, the value of that vehicle becomes less as it gains more wear and tear on it, uh, and it becomes older, and then eventually after two, three years, it might be superseded with a new model that drives the price down a little more. Now, obviously, with software, it doesn't depreciate and it doesn't wear out, it doesn't get used, but obviously, as... It gets updated and then eventually a new version is, is released. Then we're used in the software industry of seeing the price of the old things sometimes de uh, decrease uh, when, it, when a new version comes out. What we're not used to is this situation where the price just fluctuates up and down all the time. And it makes it very difficult to understand whether when you pay that top price, whether you're actually getting a good deal or not, in my opinion. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of winding me up, really. And I'm wondering whether the way to avoid it winding me up is just not to buy from these companies that do this regularly. I mean, it is these larger companies that can afford to take a piece of software that presumably they've invested quite a lot of development money in and have the price fluctuate up and down. I guess what it comes down to is I'm, I'm worried that if I'm paying the initial price for a game or a piece of software on the iOS platform and then the price goes down by 80%, even if only for a limited time it goes up goes up again, I guess I'm left with a feeling that maybe I got kind of taken advantage of. I paid an early adopter tax. Um, I don't feel very comfortable with that. I don't really feel comfortable with large software corporations using me and my fellow iOS users as kind of pawns in their corporate money games. 
Um, I, they must have marketing strategies, I would imagine, behind these these price changes and these promotions. But the, the worry I have is ultimately we'll get to a situation where people won't buy any software unless it's on sale. And if it's all, if you only ever buy it when it's at a discount, then that makes the discount effectively meaningless, doesn't it? Uh, over here in the UK, we have a. Uh, uh, several chains of furniture stores that sell so, uh, sell uh, sofas, couches, that sort of thing, um, and they're famous uh, for always having a sale on. They're always selling their couches, their sofas at fifty percent, seventy percent off. Often they they sell these over uh, you know at very generous finance terms as well. So you never pay um, sticker price for any of these sofas. You never pay the thousand pounds they are. They're always. Um, 50% off, 70% off, and then they give you a very sweet three-year interest-free payment deal as well. And of course, if you think about it, if something is always 50% off, that means it was never at the full price, and that means it's not worth what the notional full price is. Anybody could, uh, you know, dress something up, make it look more expensive by putting a notional expensive sticker price on it that they don't, don't expect people to pay. And, I, and this is what worries me with these, these big game sales, these big application sales, is that eventually you'll get it to a situation where nobody will buy the software until it's on sale. Um, and everyone will kind of be waiting around, waiting for these promotions to come out. And I don't think that's a very healthy situation at all, particularly if you're a small developer trying to compete because you may sit down and do the work and do the calculations and figure out a fair price for your app, depending on the effort you've put into it and what you think is a fair price for the value it delivers. And people won't buy it because they'll be waiting for you to promote it and sell it effectively at a loss. So I don't think that's very good, really. What do you think? Do you think I'm right? Do you think I'm crazy? And what do you think you could do to fix the problem? I wouldn't like to see, for instance, Apple to step in and impose restrictions or price targets onto different developers. I don't think that it's really Apple's place to do that, and I'm sure that Apple wouldn't really have very much interest in doing that anyway. Um, perhaps what Apple could do is say to each developer, okay, we've amended the terms and conditions, and you there is a limit on the amount of price changes you can make to your application over a given period, and that would certainly limit some of the fluctuation that we've seen but again i don't know whether that's a great idea and what what i would <laughs> the flip side of this argument of course is is when they knock the price down to 80 percent off for some applications or games that are actually really really good then that's an incredible deal so does that debase the software or is my complaining about it just potentially poisoning the opportunity of us receiving this software at such a great price i don't know I don't know really what the answer is. I don't know whether maybe it's a real issue or not. I don't know whether other people have had the same thoughts as me. So um, just something to think about. I'm sure that when Tim hears this, he'll have his own perspective and comments to add. So I'd be interested in hearing those. We'll certainly look to follow that up next time I get to speak to him on the show. And um, certainly if you have any thoughts or comments, then get in touch with us and, uh, and let us know what you think. We'd be certainly interested in hearing from you. Now, the other thing that's going on at the moment is um, this is the week in Barcelona here over in Europe of the Mobile World Congress, which effectively is the worldwide show for the cell phone industry. 
obviously there's been a lot of news in the cell phone industry recently. There's uh, Microsoft and Nokia have announced this new partnership, which perplexes me a little bit, I've got to be honest. Um, I understood everything that Microsoft had said so far about their Windows Phone 7 strategy was they didn't want to get in a position where um, the user experience for the phones was variable or debased by the fact that each manufacturer was putting their own stuff on top of it. Well, you could call some of it, certainly for some phones, crapware, just in the same way as you get in the PC industry, where manufacturers put their own stuff on top of the phone experience. Certainly we've seen this on previous Microsoft phones in the past, where some manufacturers will put their own user interface on top of the Microsoft interface, and um, that's fine when you stay within the bounds of that UI that the manufacturers developed, but as soon as you do something outside of that they either didn't think of or didn't think was important then the user interface changes back to the standard microsoft windows phone one that was one of the things that microsoft said they wanted to avoid with windows phone 7 they said they wanted a consistent experience across all manufacturers and certainly with the first round of phones they've achieved that it's a new ui uh, it's actually quite a nice ui it's certainly different from what uh, apple does with the iphone um, and I'm not saying it's better or worse because I haven't really used the phones enough to comment on that, but it's certainly different, and uh, different and innovative is certainly good in, an, in any sort of industry. But, of course, the tie-up with Nokia... OK, Nokia makes phones, but it's not an exclusive arrangement that Microsoft have done with them, so the Samsungs, the HTCs, the LG, Microsoft Windows phones will presumably still be out there. So how does Nokia get anything out of this deal? What do they what value do they want to add to the process? Bearing in mind they've effectively killed all of their other smartphone developments in favour of this Microsoft strategy, you would imagine that they are going to want to do something on top of the platform. What's that going to look like? And you're going to end up with a situation with the Microsoft phones where a Nokia Microsoft phone is not going to work the same way as a Samsung or an HTC phone, which, as I said, I thought Microsoft was keen to avoid. Don't know quite how that's going to work. But anyway, that's an aside, really. It's not really what I wanted to talk about in detail. Because what I wanted to talk about in detail was the um, the other big mobile platform developments going on, which is obviously the tablet place. Um, as... Regular listeners to this show will know Tim and I are both iPad users and ardent iPad supporters, but we've both said previously that we'd actually like to see more competition in the tablet space. And competition is generally good because it drives innovation, and I don't think any company, even one that's effectively recreated a market segment like Apple has with the iPad, um, would want to be um, so dominant in the space that they might be tempted to rest on their laurels and not really develop further. And so I think effective competition for the iPad will be important. Uh, And um, from a consumer perspective, there are some people who, for various reasons, don't get on with Apple products. They either don't like the uh, approach that Apple takes to running its stores or they want to run customization to the device that Apple doesn't really allow. There are a variety of reasons why people, even if they're not particularly anti-Apple as a corporation, might not want to buy an iPad but would want an alternative product. So it's important that those products are available for them in the marketplace. The difficulty I have is obviously 
looking for um, competitors to the iPad, and I, I'm a strong believer of you know, disabusing this notion of there can be only one that a lot of the tech industry uh, media likes to have. Um, so I don't, I'm not looking for anything that's going to come across and kill the iPad or dominate over the iPad, but I think there's plenty of room in such a new market for more than one player. Um, so I've, I've been following with some interest some of the other devices. Uh, the difficulty I have is that it just seems like nobody, and I mean absolutely nobody, has a really clear idea about how to compete with the iPad. And even the ones who are closest to it, you kind of, you look at some of the announcements they're making and you think, well, you don't get it, do you? Let me, uh, let me kind of illustrate what I mean by this. Um, I'd like to use as my primary example of, of how a company that's in the right position to, to compete and yet fails to miserably... Um, that sort of exhibit A, if you like, for, the, for this case I'm constructing is Sony. Sony was in a prime position to compete with, well, not to compete, but to build upon its success with the Sony Walkman by moving into digital music. And by competing with the Sony Walkman, you have to really, if you want to do a digital version of a Sony Walkman, you have to replicate the features of a Sony Walkman. So let's boil those down. What were they? Obviously it played tapes, so it's, it was portable, um, compact. But tapes have the advantage and you can record your own audio with them. So you could dictate onto them, you could record music onto them, your own music. You could even, and this was frowned upon by the music industry, but nevertheless was perfectly possible, you could even record your CDs, your LP records, or even other tapes to tapes and then put them into your Walkman and listen to them. So Sony's response to this in the digital age was the, um, well, they went through various different products, but the first thing they really tried to do properly was the Sony Minidisc. Now I had a couple of Minidisc players, uh, and in fact a couple of Minidisc recorders as well, and um, it was really quite a nice platform. It was compact. Minidiscs were small, they were very durable, they were fairly easy to handle, um, the sound quality was excellent, um, the battery life of the players was very good, the recording capabilities of the players was pretty good, um, you got quite a lot of very nice Sony design um, technology into the devices, they were very small, they were pretty easy to use, pretty much had everything going for them. Except they didn't, because who, who's heard of Minidisc today? Probably most people didn't even know about it when it was when it was around. It was a fairly niche format, even at the time that it was popular. And why was that? Well, the players and the recorders were quite expensive. The um, recording media, the Sony Minidiscs themselves, were quite expensive, because everyone who made them had to pay a license fee to Sony. Um, they were hobbled in terms of functionality, despite the fact they were recording music or audio onto a mini disc in a digital format. Um, you weren't allowed to actually stream the data off the mini disc in a digital format. You could get a mini disc drive for your computer, but it wouldn't read an audio mini disc. And 
even when Sony built hardware into the mini discs to allow them to interface electronically to a computer via USB cable, they still wouldn't let you take audio you'd recorded off a mini disc and electronically transfer it to a PC or to another digital device. You had to basically play it as audio. Uh, and effectively, that meant you were doing an analog to digital conversion every time you played that audio to record it somewhere else, which not only did it take time, because obviously you had to play it at real-time speed, but you also lost quality in that process as well, which kind of uh, kind of made the whole um, prospect of taking the digital audio off the disc in the first place really a bit pointless. Um, and as you might imagine, um, with all of those things going against it, Mini just didn't last very long. It lasted about, well, it was probably about 10 years in total, but it really, it was on life support after the first three. And, um, uh, it, it didn't really, didn't really survive. And obviously, um, sometime after Mini Disc was launched and, and was up and going, then Digital Audio came along. And we kind of know the story of that, don't we? Device I'm holding a recording. This audio one right now is the legacy of the success of digital audio, digital MP3, and obviously um, Apple's iPod in particular. So this is what I'm seeing now in the tablet space. We've got a variety of manufacturers with a variety of platforms, and they're all competing notionally against the iPad, um, I mean, they would have to be competing against the iPad because the iPad has redefined and recreated the tablet market and obviously is the market leader, selling very high volume. But how are they competing? Well, they're competing with devices that, in the main, at the present, are less functional than the iPad. The operating system they're running... Um, mostly our Google Android, is less capable than the iPad's current operating system. They're running those, they're implementing those devices. These devices are often much more expensive than the iPad. The uh, recently announced Motorola Zoom, for instance, which is running the latest and greatest uh, Google Andrew, Android Honeycomb 3.0 software, which is the first supposedly specialist tablet version of Android. Um, is going to go for about eight nine hundred dollars. The um, the LG Optima tablet is going to go for a thousand dollars. There's Windows Seven tablets, obviously running Windows Seven, that normally go for about eight nine hundred dollars as well. There are devices that are cheaper than the iPad, but the hardware in those devices is frankly lousy. They have poor battery life, poor screens. They have weedy processors and a short on RAM, which means the user experience you get from them is really poor because everything works on them in quite jerky manner. Now, there are other competitors taking different approaches. There's BlackBerry with their playbook. Um, obviously not released yet, but we're starting to see quite a lot of information about BlackBerry's playbook. Um, but the playbook basically doesn't have built-in wireless networking you have to have a BlackBerry device in order to use it on the internet. So again, going back to my Sony example, here's a device that, great idea, great functionality notionally, um, hobbled by some poor design choices. 
also a problem with the BlackBerry Playbook is that the software platform um, is effectively web apps only. So you can't develop apps directly for the Playbook that run standalone in the Playbook. They have to run as web apps in the browser or through some um, rendering of the browser engine rather than being dedicated hardware apps. Now, we'll see how that plays out, but um, Apple tried to take that approach and eventually launched the App Store where it didn't take that approach. So um, just from Apple's experience, that doesn't appear to be an approach that potentially works very well. HP has obviously bought Palm, and they've got a WebOS device coming. This one is probably the closest to a big, incredible iPad competitor. It's a platform that um, should do the job. It's dedicated uh, HP in the same position as Apple. They're going to be controlling the hardware and the software and the experience and everything. So... um, Potentially, they they could do well, but we've seen nothing yet from HP on price, on release date, um, which is speculated to be towards the end of this year. Um, And uh, so, uh, really, that one's a bit of a a shot in the dark at the moment until those things get get cut and buttoned down. And and my view is, if you need to compete with Apple and the iPad, obviously iPad 2 is due at some point this year, we don't know exactly when... um, then what you need to do is you need to be able to compete either on price, you need to be at least price equivalent with the iPad, I would say, and you need to be offering the same sort of user experience. So you need to have an app store, you need to have a platform for the apps that's going to encourage developers to come in and actually build at least um, comparable numbers of apps that that Apple is able to offer. Um, And, you know, all of these things kind of need to be organized and sorted out and made attractive to all of the players involved properly, because otherwise you're not offering a platform that's comparable with the iPad at all. You're offering something that's different. Now, different might succeed, but it just comes across to me that people are trying to compete on specs. They're trying to say, well, you know what, the hardware in the iPad is so primitive we can offer better hardware than that. We can offer higher-resolution screens. We can offer USB ports, HDMI ports. We can offer memory ports, uh, SD card slots, um, non-proprietary USB cables, removable batteries. Um, none of those things are the things that makes the iPad platform as popular as it is. It is the unholy alliance of a decent application platform, very, very good hard- hardware, and a really, really well-optimized user experience. And you need to be able to deliver all of those if you're going to compete. And also, if you're not going to deliver those things, then you need to be <laughs> substantially cheaper than that competition. If your platform is compromised and um, is not as functional as what Apple can offer, then you need to be saying, well, at least we're cheaper. I mean, that's what works in the PC space. It's one of the reasons why, even with Apple's improvements and um, their fantastically elegant hardware and the great operating system experience that OS X offers and everything, and the massive strides they've made in the last few years in terms of how many Macs they sell, they've still got a fairly small market share. And I don't think they have a problem with that. But one of the reasons that Windows and PCs continue to dominate is because you can't get away from it. They are cheaper. 
than Apple products. And for some people, cheaper wins over everything else. Even if the ultimate experience is less functional or more compromised than it might be with something else. And, and I think with the tablet space, it's going to be the same as well. If you're going to offer something that's not as good as Apple's experience, then it better damn well be cheaper because you're not going to get anywhere by offering the Sony mini-disc model of something that's not as good as the competition and is more expensive and is more, is more functionally compromised. Uh, and, oh, by the way, because of all of those things, might not be successful, so therefore after two, three years, all your support's going to disappear as the company moves on to do something else. And that's the risk I think everyone who buys a tablet today is taking a risk of... Um, it could ultimately happen to Apple as well. This is a very new market. Don't get me wrong. And I'm trying to stay objective here because while I have my own personal um, biases and, and um, opinion on what I think is the best platform, I do appreciate that it's not for everybody. Um, and as cheap as the iPad is for what I think it gives to people, um, or how functional it is, I think. I mean, I would have been... When, when the iPad was announced, I was expecting a higher price, and I would have been prepared to pay a higher price for it, I think. Um, but even with that, I know from speaking to many people, and many people who've asked to look at my iPad when I've been using it in front of them, many of them say, oh, I'd really love one of those, but they are quite expensive, and I, I would have to save up for it. So um, there is an opportunity for cheap, but it has to be cheap and cheerful and unfortunately everything I'm reading in the press at the moment is about saying that it's going to be not very cheerful and it's not going to be very cheap either and I don't think that's credible as competition for the iPad um, so for the moment I think it's Apple's market to lose rather than anybody else's to gain but what do you think do you think that the iPad is an overpriced toy do you think that the whole tablet space is a bit of a waste of time or do you think that HP or BlackBerry or somebody else are going to come in and clean up? Let us know and let us know what you think. Well, I, I've gotten rambled on for long enough and uh, I probably need to move rooms now because I can see somebody staring in through the window at the room I'm in. Obviously, want to have a very important business meeting or something of such like. So I'm going to wind up here and um, hopefully next time um, we do a show, it'll be Tim and me back to bouncing off each other as normal. Thanks very much and speak to you soon.